Hunter Dorenzis, communications director at Bring Our Troops Home. He's the editor at the Libertarian Institute and a regular contributor to the American Conservative. Hunter, thank you for your time. Happy to be here, Keith. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course, man. What was the Nye Committee? So the Nye Committee was named after Senator Gerald Nye, who was a Republican from North Dakota. He was a very progressive Republican in the Robert LaFollette tradition. Think uh, populist, pro-farmer, anti-big corporation, somewhat anti-big government, anti-corruption, very much uh, populist style in the interwar period. And the Nye Committee was the congressional investigation that he chaired from 1934 to 1936, investigating war profiteering and the actions of large weapons manufacturers during World War I. He and the committee, uh, where he was joined by five other senators, uh, including uh, Champ Clark of Missouri, a Democrat, and Homer T. Bone of Washington State, another Democrat, uh, they investigated places like J.P. Morgan, the DuPont brothers, investigating their profit margins during the war, and if, uh, as was widely believed at the time, uh, their pernicious influence in D.C. and among the government was a participatory cause for U.S. entry into World War I. What were some of the uh, conclusions? Did they find that there was uh, an actual sway in pulling uh, the Americans into changing public opinion, into supporting the war? Or was it uh, just uh, that the interests happened to align? The committee uncovered a lot of skullduggery and a lot of malfeasance on the part of these companies, including things like uh, undercutting uh, international uh, peace conferences, bribing foreign officials, particularly in South America, uh, funding both sides of border disputes and other minor military conflicts throughout the world. So they uncovered a lot of things when they were investigating the records and histories of these companies using the congressional subpoena power, but they weren't un they were unable to definitively prove uh, the primary thesis that the weapons companies got us into the war. And even Nye himself, as much as uh, inflammatory as he was as a speaker and as a thinker, uh, even he admitted that the thesis probably bit off a little more than it could chew. They found that the military contractors, at least, and this is speaking purely about uh, turn-of-the-century America and up to 1914, did not have significant lobbying firms in D.C. any larger than, say, any other lobbying group, such as farmers or any other special interest, um, but that it is was a contributing factor. And that the participation of J.P. Morgan, other leading bankers being guarantors of financial loans to Great Britain and France, and their encouragement of the Wilson administration to allow them to do this, and sort of introducing the route by which the United States became a co-belligerent in World War I prior to formally entering the war, that this all sort of greased the skids and contributed to it. Although obviously World War I, a very complex situation with multiple reasons for U.S. entry, and this was uh, one of several. But I think it does speak to the fact that uh, there was that there was such public interest in this issue and such a widespread public willingness to investigate arms manufacturers and ask the questions of, oh, are the people making enormous profits off of the war, making enormous profits off 
the killing and death of U.S. soldiers participating in these conflicts, is there something pernicious going on here? Is there something the public should be involved in, the public should be aware of? So I think it's just the fact that they were asking those questions and that Gerald Nye was able to have the leeway to hold uh, these investigations, host dozens of committees, call people to testify, issue and use the subpoena power, and get what is to this day the best, most transparent look at the internal functioning of weapons manufacturers in all of history, I think it's very important as an investigation and as a landmark in American history and in the congressional power, uh, even if it wasn't fully able to prove its thesis at circa 1936 at least. What can people learn from people like uh, Smedley Butler and Dwight D. Eisenhower's military-industrial complex references? I think that they can learn that there is, at least among some, maybe all, for all we know, uh, self-awareness at the top of the military brass. The generals we see on TV who become CNN commentators, who testify before Congress asking for these increased budgets— we can guess that they know what they're doing. They know and witness that the U.S. government is spending currently tens of billions reaching into the hundreds of billions of dollars on these weapons programs to receive weapons and other technological material that is not up to par, that regularly fails its testing, but earns a profit for these private contractors and guarantees an eventual job and nice pension plan for these uh, retired officers. So I think when you have people like Smedley Butler, uh, major general of the U.S. Marine Corps, and of course Dwight D. Eisenhower, not only commander-in-chief, but former commander of the entirety of U.S. military forces in Europe during World War II, uh, five-star, uh, the fact that they are able to see these connotations and really see the system, I think the only thing that makes them... Uh, stand out from the other generals is that they're willing to be public about it, that they're willing to speak out and sort of reveal, you know, pull the curtain behind and let us see inside of, hey, this is how things actually work. I'm telling you about it. I'm warning you about it. But I think it's representative of the fact that all of these people on top know what's going on. And it's, uh, it's actually a personal uh, pet peeve of mine when uh, people who oppose uh, our enormous military budget to fund the empire, people who describe themselves as non-interventionists, people who say they oppose the war machine uh, located in the imperial city of Washington, D.C., that it's just a matter of these guys don't know what they're doing. If only we can educate them. Or why does it seem, Keith, that all of these people, when they talk to us, it really seems that they're arguing in bad faith. They're calling us names. They're not really taking us seriously. You and I are making such cogent points. Why aren't they listening? It's for the fact that their entire financial livelihoods and all of the respect they are given by the public rests on this current system. And anyone who dares threaten that system, who wants to tip over the apple cart, where five giant international corporations like Northrop Grumman, like Lockheed Martin, are raking in billions and billions of dollars off the taxpayer and off the sacrifices of american soldiers any possible threat to that they're going to come down on like a ton of bricks they will uh slander they will discredit they will lie about they will come after you and i'm sure we'll get that uh into more details of that later in the conversation because 
they are well aware of how the system profits them. They're well aware of how good they have it. And they recognize people like you and I as a threat. And I think it's a very important conception for people who agree with you and I and agree that we need a dramatic reassessment of U.S. foreign policy priorities to understand. The article that I am referencing here is titled Merchants of Death from the Nye Committee to Joe Kent. The fight against war profiteering is a constant struggle. Anything people should know about uh, Joe Kent? Uh, Joe Kent is a former Green Beret who served uh, many, many years in the U.S. military, including uh, deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe. Um, he is currently a congressional candidate endorsed by Donald Trump running in uh, Washington state. Uh, the other month, he won his primary against an incumbent Republican, and he's likely to be the uh, next congressman from that district. I spoke with him about this interview because he is one of the few candidates currently who's actually making it a point to use the term military industrial complex. He's one of the few people we currently see on the ballot in the 2022 elections who's actively decrying the profits and the malign motivations that comes from these weapons companies. And I asked him flat out, if given the possibility or given the opportunity, would you be interested and or willing to host a 21st century version of the Nye Committee to investigate these companies and try to hold them to account from his new standpoint in Congress? And his response was yes, absolutely, with no hesitation. And I feel very encouraged by that personally. There was a book titled Room 40, British Naval Intelligence, 1914 to 1918 by Patrick Beasley. He says, I am reluctantly driven to the conclusion that there was a conspiracy to put the Lusitania at risk in the hopes that even an abortive attack on her would bring the United States into war. Are you familiar with um, with this thesis? I am. Uh, do you uh, believe there is any uh, credibility to it? I do. I think it's readily uh, believed by most historians at this point, or at least has to be recognized, that the situation of the Lusitania, which was uh, a British ship carrying uh, many uh, civilians, including hundreds of American civilians in uh, 1915, that it was also uh, carrying weapons of war to be used in the British war effort, and that there were numerous public warnings from uh, the German uh, the German government to that warning Americans not to get on these sort of British ships because they would be treated by the German military as uh, part of the war effort and within the laws of war uh, legally able to sink. And that's what happened when uh, Brit excuse me, a German submarine sank the Lusitania. There was an enormous explosion, not just from the torpedo, but because they ignited all of the weapons on board the ship. And that was one of the main uh, discussions uh, about American entry into World War I, where you have a very, uh, very slim minority led by Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan saying, if the United States is going to keep out of this war, we have to practice true neutrality. And that means recognizing that during or uh, in areas where there is active naval conflict between Great Britain and Germany, that Americans have to tread lightly when they go past the territorial waters of the United States, and in many cases take their lives into their own hands because that is merely uh, the risk of going into a war zone. 
whereas it became the position of Woodrow Wilson and many other Americans that the Amer- that the United States and her citizens as a allegedly neutral power had the right to go anywhere and seemingly do anything at whatever amount of risk because that was uh, incumbent on us and it was believed to be our right. And then you have I, either firmer extremists, Theodore Roosevelt, like Theodore Roosevelt, the former president, who just wanted to get into the war immediately for any reason. Um, but no, I think it's uh, – yes, I, I think it's very well acknowledged by modern historians that the Lusitania, um, while there might be disagreements on whether or not uh, – American neutral rights, whether that was a justified reason for entering the war or whether it was a reasonable position to take, that the British government and Winston Churchill in particular is, I believe at the time, First Lord of the Admiralty, was very much in favor of using incidents like the Lusitania to drift the United States in the war because that was in the interests of Great Britain. They wanted uh, the Americans to come in, not just with their troops, but particularly with increased loans and better finances to fund the British war effort. And the Lusitania was a way to make that happen. And it's a situation we've witnessed all throughout American history, from the Mexican-American War to World War I to World War II and beyond, where American presidents and foreign governments uh, either collaborate explicitly or just see uh, an inherent alignment of interests to create incidents and other scenarios that are more likely to draw the United States government and convince the American people to participate in a foreign war. Yeah, I want to say it was in late 1914 when Churchill was first lord of the Admiralty and he initiated the blockade around Germany, which a uh, very favorable historian, Martin Gilbert, uh, a favorable towards Churchill, estimates that something in the hundreds of thousands uh, women and children died as a cause or result of not being able to trade or get access to food and uh, other medicines at the time. Uh, I want to put... And that, that was one of the arguments that was put forward by Brian and the others who believed that the United States should remain neutral and hold both sides to account. The mm-hmm. fact that we are demanding of the German government that Americans ought to be free to travel safely in international waters, aboard British ships, travel to Great Britain and participate in trade. But there were no demands by the American government or by the White House being made upon the British government to allow Americans to bypass the British blockade, travel to Germany, trade with Germany. It was a completely one-sided demand because at this point already the administration – and to be fair in – very large part, the American population started World War One in full sympathy with the Entente, with the British and French. The uh, notice by the Imperial German Embassy uh, was actually published in American newspapers saying, Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies, Great Britain. It goes on, but uh, these uh, documents can be found. One citation that I use is page 432 of the Intimate Papers of Colonel House. This was actually published by Yale University. I believe the year is 1928. It says, on the morning of May 7th, House, Colonel Edward House, uh, Wilson's right-hand man, and Edward Gray drove out to Kew. We spoke of the possibility of an ocean liner being sunk, recorded House, and I told him if this were done, a flame of indignation would sweep across America, which would in itself probably carry us into the war. An hour later, 
house was with King George in Buckingham Palace. We fell to talking, strangely enough. The colonel wrote that night of the probability of Germany sinking a transatlantic liner. He said, suppose they should sink the Lusitania with American passengers on board. So the reason that I use this is because Yale published this in the late 1920s in reference to Colonel House. I looked for retractions. I looked for clarifications. There's a very high likelihood that there was a general understanding that we could do A, B, and C and provoke a war and change public opinion in such a way. Um, it, finally, lesson. what are uh, some lessons from World War I that we can extract I mean, we had military conscription, one of the worst forms of forced labor. America alone had 117,000 deaths, not to mention something like 10 million deaths across Europe. What are some lessons we can take from World War I? Um, before I describe the lessons, I wanted to uh, include uh, this other quote, which I, I find uh, very illuminating about the situation when it comes to American neutrality and the ability of American citizens to travel overseas, because it's a very, I think, a uh, popular opinion even currently that the United States and Americans really have the right to do anything in the world and that all other countries, all other governments must tread very softly when it comes to dealing with American citizens. And I believe the United States government, it's their responsibility to do whatever it can to keep her citizens if they go overseas, if they are gotten into trouble with foreign governments, to keep them safe and find uh, an amicable uh, solution to that. But I'd like to quote uh, Senator John J. Blaine of Wisconsin, who was a very truculent and a progressive Republican in the 1920s. He said that no American citizen has a right to jeopardize the peace and honor of his country for gain, for pleasure, for adventure. And I think that's an important way to look at it in that even though uh, the government has a responsibility to look after her citizens and find solutions, it's also the duty of citizens when we go overseas to not imperil our neighbors, our countrymen, our nation into these wars on our behalf. And when we do that, we really are taking our lives into our own hand in those situations. But uh, to answer your question about uh, lessons from World War I, I think the biggest and probably the one most applicable right now is that – as Americans, we are born with extreme privilege in the sense of we are so geographically and politically separated from the rest of the world, it is not our problem to have to find out solutions to the rest of the world's problems. As an American, you and I can sit here and say, oh, there's a border dispute in Africa. Oh, which side am I on? I don't have to care. It doesn't involve me. We're uh, very lucky in that fact to be separated by the rest of the world by two enormous oceans and being able to decide our own fate. And yet – and this was something you know, easily recognized by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and the other founding fathers as a blessing to being born an American. And yet we have people right now, people who on paper are as American as you and I, who are saying – oh, this border dispute between Ukraine and Russia, these problems in Eastern Europe, or this problem in the Middle East, oh, this uh, reform movement and protests in Iran, whose side are we on? What should we do? As Americans, we should be able to say, it's not my fight, it's not my problem, it's not my issue, it's not my land, it's not my people, it's not anything to do with me. I don't have to have an opinion, I don't have to have an answer, I don't have to choose a side. That's my right as an American. And I think that's something that the country really tried to learn after World War I, where we, as I uh, mentioned earlier, 
1914, the war opened up with most of the American public being more sympathetic to the Entente and favoring, uh, even if they didn't want to get involved uh, specifically, favoring a victory of Britain and France over Germany, uh, mostly through cultural and other such uh, informal ties. But then after World War I and witnessing the death, destruction, and the costs which you named, the American population during the interwar period realized that blessing that I described, that we, the problems of Europe don't have to concern us if we don't choose to. When we get involved, it's not an inevitability. It's not because it's our destiny. It's not because it's our job. It's a policy decision made by people in Washington, D.C., who I believe don't have the best interests of the nation at heart. And so that I think that's the primary lesson of World War I, that just because we see a problem elsewhere doesn't mean we have to make it our business. And when we do, it's not an inevitability. It's a choice. That, I think, is so vitally important. It's like the, there's almost no basic humility when it comes to uh, uh, the issues of overseas. It's like, okay, do we have the proper amount of knowledge about the situation? Do the people who are going to be delegated to having the responsibility to solving it have an incentive to make the problem better or worse? What is the reputation of the people who will be given the power to, quote, solve this situation? And uh, do they have the ability to? I mean, if murder rates are increasing in places like California, Illinois, and New York, I don't see how we can keep Taiwan safe. Uh, as, as the old quote says, he who tries to be a friend to all is in the end a friend to none, and he who tries to defend everyone defends no one in the end. It's, uh, it, it's just uh, too much. But um, I, I still think we can always have this principle of objective truth and say, you know what, uh, I, I would have to look into this situation a little more. I don't know the specifics, but we uh, we oppose people who uh, anyone who initiates violence against peaceful people. Is it happening in Israel or Ukraine or Nigeria? Uh, I, I might have to look into those details, but that is the principle with which I uh, stand firm on. And that's why I love the work at uh, the Libertarian Institute that uh, that that we do. The article uh, Merchants of Death is actually going to be part of a uh, larger compilation from what I hear. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, the American Conservative Magazine is coming forth with a new anthology book. Uh, it's out November 15th. It's called Main Street Conservatism, The Future of the Right. And it's a compendium of the best of articles from the magazine of the past 20 years. Uh, the American Conservative is coming up on its 20-year uh, anniversary ever since it was founded in 2002 by Pat Buchanan and others to oppose the Iraq War. And this new anthology will include best of articles on foreign policy, on culture, on their economic views, etc. And I'm happy to say that my article, Merchants of Death, will be included in the anthology. And I encourage everyone to pre-order the book on Amazon. Again, that's out November 15th. Look up Main Street Conservatism. Order yourself a copy. I'm sure it'll make a great Christmas gift. And, you know, just uh, dog ear the page where my article starts so you know that uh, people read that first. You wrote another article, The Campaign to Lie America into World War II. Before Pearl Harbor, there was an elaborate British influence operation of forged documents, fake news, and manipulation. What is your thesis and uh, justification for uh, su such an article? Uh, my thesis is um, 
actually a tried and true one. Uh, this one has been around for uh, several decades, uh, basically just uh, pointing out, not even alleging, just laying forth uh, the facts that the British government involved itself in uh, extremely large, influential, and successful propaganda operation in 1941 in the lead-up to U.S. entry into World War II uh, prior to the back door to war uh, through Pearl Harbor and through the Pacific, uh, that the British government wanted to increase American sympathy for the Allied powers, increase American uh, interest in participating in the war, and sort of uh, turn the tables. Because start going into 1941, a huge majority of the American population had learned the lessons of World War I, which I uh, just mentioned that we did not want to get involved in the Second World War. We did not want to come save uh, John Bull's bacon once again. Uh, we just wanted to keep to ourselves and not suffer the enormous financial and costs in blood that we did during World War I. The British government recognized this, recognized that once again it was in their interest to get the United States involved, and you spent an enormous amount of money and diplomatic cover to create an operation located right here in the United States in Rockefeller Center to propagandize the American people and do several things. That included um, creating fake news stories in overseas uh, publications and sending them to domestic American publications and newspapers where they were reprinted. Uh, these are stories favorable to the British war effort to make it look like they were winning the war at the time. Um, it is also involved uh, in large part uh, defaming, decrying, lying about, smearing America First leaders, including Gerald Nye, uh, as isolationists. Uh, you know, a favorite term created uh, then and still used today to refer to people who oppose uh, aggressive war abroad and universal military empire. Um, and the idea that they were uh, German sympathetic opposition instead of being the pro-American opposition, the allegation that they were receiving money from Nazi Germany, which is still something you hear called about today, uh, and the uh, equivalization between uh, the America First Committee as domestic and wholesome an organization as ever was, what ever, was ever founded in this country, being made uh, comparable to the German-American Bund, which was just a Nazi stand-in. Um, and all of these things helping to engineer the public attitudes against the position of America first and being more sympathetic to it, uh, being involved in the war. And of course, uh, probably most importantly, actually forging documents to be given to the administration to aid in the Roosevelt administrations and the White House's uh, push to get the United States involved in the war. And that including forging uh, two documents specifically. One was uh, alleged uh, plan by Nazi Germany to conquer South America and lay forth all these new German colonies, which they would then use to threaten the United States. And uh, new plan by Hitler that alleged they would uh, abolish all the world's religions, Hinduism, Christianity, uh, Islam, everything, and create a new religion based around Hitler and the swastika. These were documents that we know, uh, inarguably, uncontrovertibly, were produced by the British government 
as fake news and passed to the White House and that Roosevelt used in a well-publicized speech in the fall of 1941 to help sway American public opinion to become more interested in joining the war effort and seeing Nazi Germany more of a military threat than they arguably were at the time. And I lay forth the case in the article, which uh, is would be disputed on whether or not Roosevelt knowingly used false documents. I believe the evidence is very strong that he completely knew what he was doing, but there, I'm sure there's other arguments saying being unable to know the full inner workings of FDR's mind, that he was just as duped as every as everyone else. And people can read the piece and find out for themselves. But th this is a, an argument that still goes on today. I remember just being a kid and watching a special on the History Channel where they talked about finding um, uh, talked about FDR's speech and the German plans to invade South America. Or how in uh, Hitler's bunker, when American troops went in, they found a globe with a swastika drawn over South America, and these are the plans to, you know, take over. And, you know, it's all bunk. None of it's true. It's all just war propaganda that because it served the interests of the internationalists, of the interventionists, that was never really debunked in the public mind, even though we have the archival records, we have the research, we have the memoirs, we have all the information to prove what it is, and they can't argue it, so they'd rather just not bring it up. So even though the thesis of my article is a bit tried and true, not original to me, I think I was very happy to write the piece just to get the information more out there in the public mind and put it to people our age and just everyone today that these arguments and this history is important because the same things that happened back then are, in all likelihood, still going on right now. There is a book published in 1947 titled Pearl Harbor, The Story of the Secret War by George Morgenstern. It says, in his diary entry of November 25th, 13 days before Pearl Harbor, Stimson, referring to Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, expressed the dilemma in the baldest terms, describing the War Cabinet meeting in the White House. He stated, There the President brought up entirely the relations with the Japanese. He brought up the event that they were likely to be, that we were likely to be attacked, perhaps as soon as next Monday. For the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning, and the question was what we should do. The question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. And that's why Hawaii was such a convenient location, because it was not a, a, an America uh, a state at the time. It was more of a uh, colony or just a uh, geographical land that had a base on it. So they always had plausible deniability while they could be simultaneously provoking them. And then on page 309, uh, Morgan Stern says, Japan had obligingly provided the solution for President Roosevelt's dilemma. Stimson expressed his reaction to the Jap attack, which was costing 3,000 American lives with the utmost frankness. He wrote in his diary, when the news first came that Japan had attacked us, my first feeling was of relief that the indecision was over and that a crisis had come in a way which would unite all our people. This continued to be my dominant feeling in spite of the news of catastrophes, which quickly developed. For I feel that this country, united, has practically nothing to fear. 
while the apathy and divisions stirred up by unpatriotic men had been hitherto very discouraging. Are you familiar with the thesis that Pearl Harbor was intentionally provoked? I am familiar with the thesis. I have not done the legwork to go and read the uh, complete works of the revisionists who have investigated uh, the Pearl Harbor pre-planned thesis. I think it is acknowledged by all historians, uh, pro and anti-FDR, that Roosevelt favored U.S. entry into the war as early as 1939 and inarguably by 1941. He believed it was the, in the interests of the United States uh, and, of course, himself to involve the U.S. in the war to benefit Britain and the other allies uh, against the Axis powers. I think it's incontrovertible uh, and not disputable based on things like Stimson's memoirs and other primary documents from the time that the Roosevelt administration purposely favored the souring of relations between the United States and Japan throughout 1941 uh, in response to Japanese expansionism in the Pacific and their aggressive behaviors towards China, Britain, and other powers, seizing colonies and the like, and that they did not favor any kind of rapprochement, even though that was a possibility at the time. So I think – and historians will defend that as even though Roosevelt favored getting into the war – Getting into the war was a good thing. So FDR is still a hero and one of our greatest presidents. And whether you believe that can come down to a matter of politics. But speaking about history and what can be proved and not proved, while I fully agree and acknowledge that Roosevelt favored United States entry into the war and certainly helped sabotage American diplomacy and overseas efforts to help engineer U.S. entry into the war – when it comes down to the nitty-gritty on whether you, Roosevelt, say, purposely put the, almost the entirety of the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor to make it easier for the Japanese to attack in one fell swing, or whether definitively the codes, the Japanese codes, were broken sufficiently to have full pre-knowledge of the attack and that the administration and the White House sat on it uh, so the Japanese would attack Pearl Harbor and catch the uh, military garrison there with their pants down. I'm not fully convinced of that part of the thesis. I know many fine historians have been convinced by it, but I haven't done personally enough research to say that that, that is definitively in my opinion. Currently, I'm predisposed to say it's a I, – I, I don't fully agree with that position at this time. Two more pieces of evidence that I want to give on this issue. Here is the New York Times, January 2nd, 1972. The article is titled, War Entry Plans Laid to Roosevelt. This is a meeting between uh, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt in uh, Canada. In uh, the, They uh, give the date here. I believe it was August of 1941. Churchill says, he, Roosevelt, obviously was determined that they should come in. The president had said he would wage war but not declare it and that he would become more and more provocative. If the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. Later saying, everything was to be done to force an incident. Finally, the president has taken this very well and made it clear that he would look for an incident which would justify him in opening hostilities. 
the final piece of evidence which I have for um, the, the uh, intentional use of uh, Pearl Harbor uh, being uh, something that was uh, s set up in hopes of uh, bringing the U.S. in to war. This is a document titled the McCullum Memo. It was made public in 1999 by a veteran, Robert Stinnett, in a book titled Day of Deceit. The document says uh, it, it has... Uh, Seven things that the U.S. can do with its relation to Japan. Give all possible aid to Chinese government, Shanghai Shek. Complete embargo with all U.S. trade with Japan in collaboration with similar embargoes imposed by the British Empire. The reason that this is not just some kook writing a memo to himself, uh, the majority of these planks were actually implemented into the Roosevelt administration, most popularly the Export Control Act of 1940. The document ends by saying, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. At all events, we must be fully prepared to accept the threat of war. That is my general justification for having such a high likelihood that this was intentionally provoked. And you would think that if government is here to protect us and keep us safe, and then they don't keep us safe, well, Roosevelt would have had made sure that tons of people were fired. He would have stepped down. He said, I didn't even do my basic duty of keeping you safe. I uh, hereby resign. We got to, uh, you know, have a total overhaul and what could I have done better? And we owe people reparations for not holding up our end of the social contract. It's like there's not even an apology. It's complete psychopathy. So it really does fit with the character of these people. And then they use conscription again, leading to 400,000 uh, military members dying in the Second World War. So what else do we uh, can we learn from the Second World War, Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt's attitude, uh, Churchill's uh, interference? What are uh, some other takeaways? I think the primary takeaway when it comes to World War II is that it is incumbent on Americans who want to know more to go out and learn more themselves. We are taught, uh, not only in the public school system, but just in the wider culture, uh, the myth of World War II as the good war, where the United States was merely sitting on the sidelines and uh, enemy forces bent on world domination brought us kicking and screaming into the war, and we had no choice but to take care of business. This is not true. Uh, and this is not, you know, to give uh, any creature comforts to the Nazi regime or Imperial Japan. It's simply to say that during 1939 to 1941, there were numerous complex and very passionate debates about U.S. foreign policy and what the United States to do, should do to either encourage participation in the war or discourage participation in the war. I myself and my politics find myself fully in line with the America First Committee and the idea that it is through non-intervention that the United States as a nation and as a people can remain strong and free. And I think it is the responsibility of people today to break through those myths, to do more research, uh, and whether they find that they believe Roosevelt knew fully well what he was doing on December 7th, 1941, and whether he had pre-planned some sort of attack, 
whether they discover that or not or whether they end up believing that or not, I think it's important for people to realize that Roosevelt was trying to engineer us into the war and that despite what you might hear by uh, the special historians at NBC and PBS and all the other uh, court historians, trying to engineer your country into a war is not something that makes a great president. Yeah, uh, the sources that I look at, uh, one of them, if you look at the uh, U.S. Census Bureau, uh, some estimates range up to 60 million deaths in the Second World War if you start in 1933 with the uh, Japanese going into China and then you end in the uh, summer of 1945. It's amazing that the good war caused so much death, so much destruction, gave half of Europe to Stalin led to proxy wars in Vietnam, Korea, and uh, Afghanistan in the late 70s. And they just brag about this uh, generally. So one uh, quote from Winston Churchill, he wrote a book called The Gathering Storm. This is the very first book that came out after uh, the World War. And in the preface, he says, one day, President Roosevelt told me that he was asking publicly for suggestions about what the war should be called. I said at once the unnecessary war. There never was a war more easy to stop than that which has just wrecked what was left of the world from the previous struggle. The human tragedy reaches its climax in the fact that after all the exertions and sacrifices of hundreds of millions of people and the victories of the righteous cause, we have still not found peace or security and that we lie in the grip of even worse perils than those we have surmounted. This is another case that pacifists or people who just don't support uh, wars, which is indiscriminate mass murder, uh, that they make. One, the costs of war are extraordinarily high. And two, you don't know what the outcome is going to be because the people in there don't have the knowledge or incentives to make sure that there is a really good outcome based on truth and freedom and uh, and everything else. So uh, because you're not dealing with, is it okay to steal bread to feed a starving woman? Well, you know that if you take the bread and you give it to her, she puts it in her mouth, she will be fed. That is a heck of a lot different than saying, well, uh, what's going to happen if Gaddafi and Saddam are killed and uh, we uh, try a regime change operation with the Taliban? Well, okay. do you see how many different variables there are between saving the starving woman by giving her a piece of bread? Yes, it's a non-aggression principle violation. But then there's another huge violation of the freedom principle, and you have no clue what the results are going to be. So uh, I think uh, the work uh, y- you did on these two art- these three articles, rather, we have one more. Um, you, and it, uh, well, I would add to that no. real quick that not only is it a problem of not being able to witness the consequences, it's the confusion of goals and what we're trying yeah. to achieve. And that's – I mean it's such – U.S. foreign policy – And uh, to discover more about that, I would recommend the great book Enough Already by Scott Horton. Great guy. Uh, People check that out to realize how schizophrenic our foreign policy has been uh, during the global war on terror and going back just the past 40 years at least. But this confusion of goals and uh, applying that to World War II was the goal of the allied powers to ensure a free and democratic Poland unmolested by foreign aggressors such as Nazi Germany. That didn't happen. Poland began uh, over 40-year military occupation by the Soviet Union at the end of the war. Was the destruct was the complete destruction of the Nazi regime the goal? 
we were completely successful in that. And uh, one of the results was, of course, as you mentioned, the Soviet occupation of all of Central and Eastern Europe was the goal, the complete uh, neutering of Imperial Japan and the Japanese Empire. Again, we were successful. And one of the consequences of that was more uh, open space for the rise of communist China. Um, and the argument over whether uh, was the goal simply to make the United States the preeminent military dictress of the of planet Earth? Again, we were successful at least for several decades, but was that a good thing? So it's people even in defending World War II and other wars, they're confused about what they're trying to achieve, and you can't. It's hard to even discuss on well what went wrong when we don't even know what we were trying to do right. For those unfamiliar, uh, Neville Chamberlain's original justification on September 3rd, 1939 was declaring war on Germany because they violated Polish independence by entering Danzig, an area the size of Maryland that was 95% German. Not that I support invasions or anything, but I mean, don't pretend that this was just totally out of nowhere and it was just a uh, blatant uh, power grab against the will of the people. So much uh, important uh, information there. Finally, uh, one other article of yours that I really, really appreciated was called The Child Sex Trafficking Scandal America Forgot. What is uh, this article about? This article is about the kidnapping of Johnny Gosh, a young Iowa paper boy in the early 1980s, and its connections to the Franklin scandal, which was a child sex trafficking scandal in uh, 1980s Nebraska, uh, centralized in uh, Omaha, and uh, focused on the Franklin Federal Credit Union, was, which was a bank in the area led by Mr. Lawrence E. King, who was one of the uh, rising stars in the Republican Party. He sang the... Uh, 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 the national song at the uh, 1984 Republican National Convention was one of the leaders in uh, several <clears throat> uh, black uh, Republican groups and uh, was charged and convicted of embezzling $40 million from the Franklin Federal Credit Union and was also investigated for being one of the ringleaders of a child sex trafficking operation where he would lead several uh, – well, many minors, and take them on flights to sex parties in Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, other major centers where they were forced to have uh, sex with and do drugs with uh, some of the uh, elite leaders in politics, finance, the police, big business, etc. And uh, the allegation that this was a massive cover-up of this scandal and uh for more research i for i definitely recommend everyone read the article i was very happy about that i've called it the most important article i've ever read unfortunately about the most unsavory topic i've ever covered uh but for a longer dispensation i definitely recommend everybody check out the franklin scandal by nick bryant it's probably the best work done on the scandal as a whole it's magnificently researched and has all of the footnotes. And I also recommend people check out the documentary Who Took Johnny. Uh, you can rent it on Amazon. It's an excellent introduction to these. Uh, it'll be one of the worst things you've ever watched and you'll regret it, but it's still important that you do. I love uh, the part of uh, the Franklin Scandal book where uh, he 
just copies almost all the primary documents that mm -hmm. he is referencing. And the last hundred pages are just primary documents based on the finder's cult, uh, the interviews with Paul Bonassi. You know, I mean, we actually have names of the kids, Troy Bonner, Alicia Owens, where, uh, I mean, Paul Bonassi especially has a very credible case um, where he had said a number of things that the media misreported. He accurately uh, conveyed them to Noreen Gosh, and the FBI could not have been less interested. Even in the uh, Who Took Johnny documentary, they said, uh, what is the update on the Johnny Gosh case? And then the woman intervenes uh, but behind the scenes. Oh, but we uh, agreed that there wouldn't be any questions about Johnny Gosh. I mean, the, the protecting and serving is uh, it, it, just so uh, blatant uh, when it comes to something like this. Hunter, where is the best place for people to find your collection of research? If there was one site that uh, they could go to, what would you recommend? If ever, if anyone wanted to check out just a complete library of all of the articles I've had published at various places, you can go to hunterdorensis.com, H-U-N-T-E-R-D-E-R-E-N-S-I-S.com. It's you know, it's not fancy. It's just a list of links, but everything's there. And I encourage people to follow me on Twitter at Hunter Dorenzis, just my name. I think I have a pretty good feed and uh, you'll catch, a, you know, any new stuff I come out with. And uh, I encourage everyone, if you have a couple extra dollars, donate to the Libertarian Institute, you know, help me and Keith keep doing great work that you like. And if you have more dollars, go to bringourtroopshome.us uh, the website uh, where I have my uh, full-time gig and contribute a few dollars to America's veterans who are trying to bring our troops home from these endless wars and become a supporting member of the 10-7 Club, our supporters group. Uh, just go to the donate tab at bringertroopshome.us, contribute a couple bucks and, you know, support the Libertarian Institute, support Bring Our Troops Home, support libertarian organizations who are trying to do good after uh, many, many decades, centuries of people in Washington, D.C. doing bad. Hunter Dorenzis, thank you for your time, brother. And thanks to everyone for watching. Keith and I don't tread on anyone and the Libertarian Institute.